Welcome to Still Growing in Grace, a program dedicated to inspiring joy, giving hope, and delighting in grace. I'm Mike Zenker, and I'll be sharing with you a message of hope that will expand your understanding of God's love and amazing grace. God already deeply loves you, totally accepts you, and really, really likes you. Growing in Grace Ministries Canada and Hope Fellowship, your community church, invite you to enjoy today's program as we dig deeper into what it means to be still growing in grace. All righty. Hello and welcome, uh, Keith Giles. Uh, thanks for taking time to join me. Um, I've gotten to know you in this last year. It's only been a year. And... Uh, wow. God put you in my path at a really, really good time. So it's been a lot of fun getting to know you, know your heart. Um, I think one of the things I appreciate most, honestly, I haven't told you this yet, but the authenticness of your heart and your search for truth and wanting others to see a better gospel. Um, that's what I've seen. I love it. So mm -hmm. that's why I resonate with you and, and all the stuff you do. So thank you. that's all. Thank you. Where, where are you from and uh, what do you do? What, what's on your plate right now? We'll do this quick. Yeah, okay, I'll try to do it quick. Well, I'm from, born in Tennessee, raised in Texas, lived 25 years in California, lived one year in Idaho, just moved back to El Paso, Texas a year ago. Um, so I'm kind of from all over. Um, and what do I do for a living? Well, at the moment, what I do for a living, the last two years, I guess, I've been full-time author, uh, doing some online teaching based on some of my books. Uh, I write blogs, I do a podcast. Um, Teach courses. Yeah, teach some online courses, yeah. Um, where it's how you and I met, this Square One class uh, yeah. I was doing. And um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of fun. I, I kind of get paid to do all the things I, I love to do uh, and would do anyway, actually. So. What'd you do before that? You were pastoring, I believe. Yes, yeah, so, um, yeah, so I was licensed and ordained as a Southern Baptist pastor about 30-something years ago and served so off sorry. and on. Yeah, I know. It's actually, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm recovering. So I'm happened. kidding. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. I'm serious. <laughs> um, but also we're, was part of the Vineyard Church movement in California for a while. We planted a church there. My wife and I were some friends of ours. And it was, you know, it was a good experience. But we walked away from that and started this little house church thing that lasted for about 11 years in California. Uh, and the vision for that was to give away everything to the poor in the community and not keep any money for ourselves. And that's when I got a job. I worked as a copywriter in an in-house marketing agency for a while, uh, for about 11 years. And, um, and yeah, so that's what, uh, that was our experience back in California. That was really sweet. Okay, cool. Well, you've, you've recently written a book. Uh, I think your latest book, I believe, is called Jesus Unexpected. So let me just pull that up on the screen. Uh, that is the cover of the book. Uh, forward is by Baxter Kruger. Imagine yeah. that. That's amazing. So Jesus Unexpected, Ending the End Times to Become the Second Coming. Do you want to explain that? Well, yeah. It's a little bit of a different vision of the end times, which is why I felt like I, wanted, I needed to write this book. Um, you know, I was raised in that whole end times thing about, you know, the, the, you know everybody else rec remembers the Left Behind series, but I'm before that. Prior to that, it was The Thief in the Night. That's me. Yeah, me too. Oh, yeah. Um, really, Distant really Thunder, bad. you name it. Scare yeah, the hell out of you. Oh yeah, they're horrible '70s bad. No, no budget basically. No budget. That guillotine image. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's bad. Uh, but anyway, but it's the same idea. It just strikes this total fear, and and I was raised with a lot of fear around this whole idea of the second coming, which is the opposite of what we, you know, I think we should have. Why would we be afraid that Jesus was going to come back or whatever? But it just created this fear of being left behind and the tribulation and the antichrist and you know the mark of the beast and all these things and. Um, 
So it really made me, really gave me a lot of peace when I started really studying this topic of biblical prophecy in the end times, et cetera, for myself. And really only a few, probably maybe like three years ago, I, I thought I saw something in the scriptures that I, no one had ever shown me before. Um, and I would got really excited, like, whoa, this is, it really is good news. I think there actually is a very positive message we should take from uh, the, the scriptures on, on this topic. And it's not the typical thing that we hear, uh, we, most of us grew up with hearing. Wow, that's amazing and timely because um, the reason I wanted to chat with you on this video, uh, I want to share a portion of this on my Sunday morning um, message because I want I want to find out from you if you're hearing the same thing that I am. I'm I'm hearing a lot of fear among believers or people who call themselves Christians and uh, what they're saying with this COVID news and this idea of a vaccination and this chip and the mark of the beast. Oh, the end times are coming. Uh Oh, and the rapture's coming and people are, are throwing their hands up with either fear or hope as in let's get everyone destroyed. So Jesus can come. And I'm thinking Mm -hmm. this is a very bizarre way to see your fellow person. Um, uh, It seems very unloving and fear-driven. Are you seeing the same kind of thing? Oh, exactly. No, that's exactly what I see. And and that's really one of the reasons why I felt like I I needed to get this book out there because I feel like Christians, if we are being motivated by fear, if we're letting fear motivate us and and manipulate us, yeah, we're not really focused on the things that Jesus wants us to be focused on. So what do you do do with those folks that are throwing... um, uh, a barrage, they have a wheelbarrow, prepared wheelbarrow of Bible verses. They just bleh, there, and you're supposed to interpret all those verses they paste on the on Facebook or on Twitter. Say, here, this is my answer, and this, it's just a Bible verse, as if you're supposed to understand what it means. Yeah. Uh, what, do you, what, do you, what are you sensing is the biggest problem going on right now with that kind of stuff? Well, here, the biggest problem I think we have that with the, in the American church, especially in the West, um, yeah, you're in Canada, so not just in, in America, similar. but yeah, in the West. Yeah, the, we, you know, there's, what I discovered was that the version of the end times story that I accepted, that is all this fear-based left behind thief in the night stuff, it actually is only as new as 1830. Mm-hmm. And so that means for 1,830 years, Christians around the planet did not believe this, did not accept this, weren't setting dates, weren't expecting, oh, any minute now Jesus is coming back. And, and that's a shock to me, like, oh, mm-hmm. okay. So basically, I talk about in the book, I kind of outline the history of how we got this, where this came from. It isn't, it isn't that people read the scriptures and said, oh, look, uh, this is what's, what's going to happen, you know, in the end. Um, it's really this guy, John Nelson Darby in England around 1830. Uh, it's a much more convoluted history. To, I'll just simply say he is the guy that basically cobbled this idea together, popularized it, brought it to America, it got accepted initially by people like Dale Moody, then um, Schofield, uh, who started the Schofield, you know, published the Schofield Reference Bible with Darby's In Times Rapture Notes. Notes were all in there, yep. Yes. And, um, and Darby started preaching and others started preaching this in churches and in revivals. And it became a popular movement. So in other words, the average Christian just heard this and said, oh my gosh, this sounds great. And they just bought into it hook, line, and sinker, yep. and, it, that, and, and it sort of started spreading throughout the culture. And to fast forward to today, it's the only way Christians can think about the end times now is in this way of thinking. And what I'm trying to do in my book is to show people these verses of scripture you're talking about. If you really look at them, they're not describing this sort of thief in the night, you know, left behind story. That, it, that mm-hmm. really isn't what it's talking about at all. 
And number one, that should give you some hope mm. that, okay, this narrative I've been told, it's all about fear and all about this, you know, these horrible things that are going to happen in the future any minute now, um, <laughs> that they're really not. You can, you can rest easy. You don't need to worry about these things at all. And that actually, you don't, not only do you not need to worry about something, I, I want to give you some hope and some vision for some really awesome, exciting things that are good that you can step into that are much, much better. I mean, it's much more walking in line with who Jesus was, what he was about, what he, what he called us as the body of Christ to be about. That's what I want to do is replace this fear with some hope um, and really just help you see your role in what God is doing right now. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm finding that uh, uh, I grew up with that same late great planet Earth stuff, um, Thief of the Night, all those movies. And then every single evangelism tool was about this is about jesus coming back are you gonna be ready are you gonna be taken away in the rapture so rapturism was a huge motivation in fact i was so dumb as a grade seven student or yeah grade six and i was heading to a new school and as a grade six kid heading into grade seven at a different school i said hey guys if i don't see you next year it's because i got raptured it's like mm-hmm. that kind of deep intense belief yeah. you know and i believed it But then I had people start to speak another idea, another perspective that I'd never heard before. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't remember the name of the book, but uh, there's an old one called um, Days of Vengeance. Um, I forget who wrote that, but he wrote another book before that called, um, oh darn, I have it on my shelf. When I remembered, I'll tell you, but that something little, I think his last name's maybe little, but either way, he died young. He only was like 44 years old when he, oh, wow. he died and he was teaching about an amillennialistic view that I'd never heard of. And I remember reading one chapter to my wife in bed one night, 20 years ago, 20. And it sounded like so much hope. I said, oh my goodness, this is, this is, this is good. But then I ended up on the back shelf, but I never visited end times again until a buddy of uh, mine, a Canadian in uh, British Columbia, uh, Jan Nagel Gulbranson, uh, forced me to sit down and listen to a guy named Jonathan Welton. <laughs> and mm. uh, I listened to his stuff and that just shot me forward. I find out, found out there was like um, uh, Lynn Hiles is, was teaching on things like this. And then you, I bumped into you as well. But this theme had been running for a while. There was an undercurrent of a better message, a better understanding than what I had been yeah. told. Yes. And people, we just default to what we've been told until something better or a crisis happens. That's right. And this is part of, you know, this, this is true of, we could, you and I could just replace the topic of end times with many other topics. And it's the same story, right? You know, we, we're, we're raised, we're indoctrinated, really. We're not taught. Mm-hmm. We are indoctrinated and we're told this is the only way to think of whatever this is, whatever this doctrine is. And so you grew up thinking, well, that there's only one Christian way of thinking about whatever this is until you find out, oh, no, there's at least one, maybe two or three other Christian ways based on scripture uh, and sometimes even historically Christian ways. In other words, the the church in the first 400 years, 500 years, a thousand years, this is what they thought and what they believed. It's different from what we believe now. But, you know, to to learn that, oh, there are other ways of seeing and, and thinking about these topics. I mean, it should give you some hope and to make you go well all right well maybe there's something else to this story um, david david chilton is the author yes david chilton yeah i've heard of him yeah so that was yeah, the guy, that... guy yeah there's a guy named ken ken gentry i think yeah. he has a book called before jerusalem fell uh that's a similar kind of a, on that along those lines too 
So what would you say to somebody who is well steeped in the traditional thinking of end times um, that are afraid right now? Because the point of this series that I'm trying to get through is to bring hope. So let's, mm -hmm. let's, let's not live from fear. Let's change our minds first about the hope of Christ. And what's your, what's your first re typical response? How do you respond to people like that? Well, I, get a couple, I guess a couple of things. One would be, um, again, you and I are old enough that we've lived through several uh, returns, apocalypse, uh, right, second comings. <laughs> I, I literally still have a copy of 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Return in 1988. I still have it. Um, and so I guess one thing I would do is in, in a conversation with somebody, as you described, would be to remind them, you know, that here's, here's one thing that all of these end times prophecy authors and Bible teachers and Bible prophecy experts have in common. They've all been wrong all 100% of the time. I mean, think of it that from that perspective. All of them have this in common. They've all been 100% wrong every time. And yet, it doesn't hurt their popularity. They could put another book out today. I know. Uh, they they, didn't, they wrote the book 80, 89. They, they, he wrote, yeah, rewrote they, that yeah, book. There was. There was, yeah. Um, and so understand that there are people profiting on this topic. They understand that we have an appetite for it. We want to know the future. We want to know what's going to happen tomorrow. We feel like the Bible is some kind of a code book that if we could just crack the code of Revelation or, or Daniel or something, um, we would suddenly know what's going to happen tomorrow and, and it'll all be make sense to us, right? Mm -hmm. but, but again, anyone who's ever tried to do this has always been wrong all the time. Always. They've always said dates. They've been wrong every time. Um, you know, the, the, the Antichrist is Gorbachev. No, it actually isn't. It's Gaddafi. No, it isn't. No, Saddam Hussein. No, it isn't. You know, it's, it's always picked. Well, it, it wasn't even Hitler, for goodness sake. I mean, no one fit that mold better than it Hitler. That was the Pope. Remember it was when it was the Pope? Yeah, exactly. It's the Pope. Um, and so, again, playing this game of sort of trying to guess who these characters are and map current events to something in the, in the scriptures, um, it never leads to anything good or positive. People have lost their faith. They've lost their jobs. Yep. They've given up opportunities because, well, why bother? Why, why take that transfer? Why take that promotion? Why go to college? Why you have know? kids? Because Jesus is coming back soon. So, hey, let, yeah. like, I can't believe the stuff people have given up. Yeah. And, I'm, and for what I feel like, too, is just even in a broader sense, if you haven't done something that extreme, here's, here's what I think in almost every Christian who buys into this theology this is kind of what the majority of us end up doing, is we end up doing this. We just, we're twiddling our thumbs, waiting for Jesus to come back and fix things. Hmm. Which, again, Jesus specifically tells us multiple times not to do that, not to sit around being idle and doing nothing. And we wouldn't ever say that that's, oh, that's actively my plan. But in a way, if we're always expecting and waiting for Jesus to come back any minute now, any day now, and he's going to fix everything, then it kind of does paralyze us. It kind of keeps us in this stasis where, you know, why do I need to borrow, bother about this problem or that problem? Why, why feed the poor? Why try to help these people? Why did, you know what I mean? Because, well, it's all going to burn anyway, and Jesus is going to fix it any day now. Doesn't that um, go for and, the environment too? Can you see oh, the anti-environment yes. sentiment here? Yes. Yeah, it's all going to burn. I've heard people flat out say that. Oh. Why? And, which, again, contradicts exactly, completely what God says in, in Genesis he gives us responsibility for the earth. He doesn't tell us to abuse it, yeah. right? He tells us to be responsible, to care for it. And, and part of caring for it is, yes, we're going we're gonna to take care of it and, and you know, not, not trash it. So, yeah, that, this theology ends up doing a whole lot of things that I think are not really good if we buy into it. 
Mm-hmm. And, and really, I think really prevents us from stepping into who we really are, what we're really supposed to be about. Do you think there's also this um, uh, sense of I'm more right than you and I need to stay more right than you because I have the most up-to-date information and that's causing half the fights on the internet? Uh, of course. I mean, we play that game with all kinds of, with all kinds of theology, right? I'm right, yeah. you're wrong. Uh, you know, you're a heretic because you disagree with me. <laughs> and what you end up doing, what you're essentially saying is, I can't be right. I, I'm sorry, I can't be wrong about anything. All my theology, I'm, I am completely right, and there's no, no possible way I'm wrong about anything. And because you disagree with me, and I'm not wrong, well, you're the one who's in trouble. You're the heretic, or you're the false teacher, or you're the, you're the person who's being led astray. Um, and that's, again, that's just not a healthy way of thinking or acting or behaving, right? A more, a more honest way, a humble way would be to say, I've been wrong before. I'm probably wrong about a couple of things now. I'll be wrong again in the future. Um, you know, I'm not so worried about proving I'm right or that you're wrong. Maybe I might learn something from you if I listen to you, um, right? And that works. puts us in a different posture. Yeah, it works. Yes, the posture. We're expanding our understanding. So to say I am right and this is what I've always believed, that person scares me because mm-hmm. they've never changed their belief because they got their cute Western cubby hole of belief. So you don't have to challenge it. You don't even have to think about it because that's what it is. That's it done. And it's finalized. And yet the mystery has gone. The, yes. the idea of much more and better and a wider love of God is, is applicable to, to this world that we don't understand. So I think right. it's scary. Um, in your book, I haven't read the book yet because it's in the mail on its way to me because I've ordered it. Oh, <laughs> so I can't, I can't cheat and go through the index, sure. but uh, I'd love to have you summarize a couple of the key points that I think would be encouraging to yeah. people hearing this uh, of why not to be afraid. One of the things I'm going to be talking about tomorrow when, when I do my, this message, I don't know when this part will air, is I'm talking about Nebuchadnezzar's dream when Daniel has to interpret uh, the, the statue made out of the five elements and how yes. it represents kingdoms and so on. What I've learned so far is the top kingdoms, they've never been disputed by any theological group. They're, everyone agrees. That's the Babylonians. That's this. That's the Romans. But everybody disagrees on the feet. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. there's a huge disagreement. Um, how, is that addressed in your book at all? You know, I do not address that exact dream. I do deal with Daniel, but the main thing I deal with in Daniel, and I have a whole chapter, a very long chapter on Daniel's 70 weeks, the 70 weeks of Daniel. Okay. Um, but that's still, I think that's still a relevant um, topic to our, because it does, that dream is talking, I believe, about um, Christ and his kingdom and, mm-hmm. and the reality that we're living out today. Yes. So, I, I, yes. I have, I've come to see that rock that was made from un, uh, not human hands. I forget the right wording of it. Yeah, it's, it's, it a, it's a rock not cut by human hands. Yes. Yeah. So to me, that's the incarnate Christ arriving, hitting the earth at the right time. So if those kingdoms are in sequence, which they are, then the 10 provinces, 10 toes of Rome, that's now divided, that's made out of clay and iron. It's mixed. So it's already a lot of crap going on. It arrives and it just topples over all these kingdoms. The crisis come. What I have found is people forget to keep reading or listen to the end of the dream. The rock, and you guys mentioned this in your other thing the other day, but the rock then grows and fills and covers the whole earth. Yes. So the kingdom has come and it happened right at that time of the Roman Empire. So yes. I, to me, it's like, hey, that means love wins. 
That means his kingdom will not end and we're not going to see an utter destruction of our global universe and blah, 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 and a, and yeah. a remaking of it. I think much healing is coming. There's more hope coming, but nobody wants to see that. H have yeah. you heard anything like that about that dream? Is that familiar? No, I, I think you're dead on. You're right. And like you, you said, you know, I, I, was, I was very blessed to have a conversation with Baxter Kruger, Paul Young, and Brad Jerzak. Um, and uh, Kruger wrote the forward to my book and Brad... Actually, I, I wrote the epilogue to my book because directly Brad Jerzak suggested something and I was like, okay, I got to write this epilogue. Thanks to Brad. And Paul Young was also really encouraging me. Um, he read an advanced copy of the book and he was like, go, go, go. This is great. <laughs> so anyway, I was able to get the three of them together and uh, well, all four of us talking together. And in that conversation, yeah, we, we brought up that dream. Um, I forgot which one brought it up. Probably, probably Brad or Paul. Um, but it's a parallel that image, like you said, so two things I think are happening in Daniel, in, in that dream and in the 70 weeks of Daniel dream. Both dreams are about, the t from starting with Daniel's time, moving forward until the coming of the Messiah, right? So it's so, these are sort of signs or things to look forward to or what's going to happen leading up to. It. And then when the Messiah comes, this is what's going to happen when he shows up. So in the dream you're talking about, the part that's emphasized in that dream is how this tiny rock not cut from human hands, and it's a small, like almost like a pebble, hits this massive statue and just shatters it completely. Yep. And then again, then it, like you said, then it grows to cover the entire earth. So it's almost like it replaces the earth. It, it overshadows the, the earth itself, right? This is, this is a parallel um, you know, image that Jesus uses twice. Once when he talks about the kingdom, he goes, what shall I compare the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is like a, a mustard seed which is the smallest of all seeds, <laughs> the tiny seed. Um, and that yet when it, it grows to cover the entire garden and, and eventually becomes this massive bush and tree that all the birds, you know, um, of the field have their nests. So it's this, again, the idea of something very, very small that eventually grows and slowly overtakes everything and gives life to everything. Um, and then now the, then the parallel to that is when Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a small pinch of yeast, just mm. a tiny pinch of yeast that a woman put into a, a large lump of dough. And that, again, over a slow amount of time, like overnight or whatever, um, that small bit of yeast eventually covers that entire lump of dough until the entire lump of dough, you know, is covered with, is in, you know, infected or infilled, whatever I'm going to say, with the, with the yeast. And all three of these are pictures of the kingdom of God. This is what mm. Jesus came to tell us about was, and again, Revelation echoes as, as well when, the, when it says in Revelation that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God. Mm. And, and that's that same idea that Christ 2,000 years ago inaugurated and initiated this tiny little thing. It looks so small. It was him and like 11 guys, <laughs> a couple of people, half of them scattered when he was crucified. And then it just slowly over time. So what, fast forward almost 2,000 years, and now this kingdom of God has started to cover the earth. And it's, and it's in every nation on the planet, every tongue and tribe and nation know of the name of Christ. The, the, the kingdom of Christ is expanding. The good news of the gospel of the kingdom is, is, is expanding. And so then going back to the Daniel picture and, and those other two pictures, what we know about those pictures that were given is that it's inevitable. One day the kingdom of Christ will take over the world. That's the good, that's what's going to happen. It's a good story. It's a that's happy ending. Yeah. It's not a terrible thing. It's not awful, 
right? It's a good story. And so, yeah, we need to embrace that. But part somebody's going to rebut you right away and say, yeah, but Revelation says that all oh, the, the sword will come. He's going to kill everybody. It'll be a, a sea of blood from all the people he's killed. And it's not going to end well. Like, right. how, do you address that in the book? I do. Yeah, I cover Revelation in great detail. So I try to get all the major, you know, Daniel, yeah. 70 weeks, Olivet Discourse, Second uh, Thessalonians, Thessalonians, um, Matthew and then, 25. yeah, the Revelation passage and a uh, passage in Revelation. So here's the thing about Revelation. This is, this is really our biggest problem. And um, it's the reason why many early church fathers voted not to include the canon uh, in Revelation in the canon. Because um, not that it's not, not a good, you know, text. Uh, it's just that it's so misunderstood and therefore abused mm. um, that it's done in many ways more harm than good, I think, mm. to the church. So I think if we properly understand the book of Revelation, it can be a wonderful thing for us. Unfortunately, you know, again, the story we're talking about, the left behind in times, you know, even the night stuff, Revelation has been used to tell a version of the story that the original author of Revelation did not intend um, to create fear and dread and something out there in the future that's going to be this horrible, horrible thing. Um, so let me, let's just back up a, a bit and, and let's reframe Revelation before we get into that, that question. Um, and I think Brian Zahn, by the way, Brian Zahn has, the, has a beautiful passage in his book, um, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, where he, he addresses the book of Revelation. I quote him in my book, because I think he just does a beautiful job of this, um, of saying, you know, that when you're young, you come to Revelation, you're told it's a book about what's going to happen in the future. Mm -hmm. And he goes, then I figured out I was wrong. That's not what it's about. So what is it about? Revelation is actually a beautiful metaphor. Let's just admit it. It's a metaphor. There, it's not about literal ten-headed dragons with 20 horns and six eyes coming out of a bottomless pit. Like, that isn't literal. Those are all metaphors, figures, images. Um, and what, in general, Revelation is, is wanting us to get is it's telling us a very, very uh, flowery story of how Christ's kingdom subverts empire. Hmm. Now, specifically, it's about how Christ's kingdom subverts the Roman Empire, um, and so if you want to get technical, that's sort of the specific story that it's telling. But in general, because it's very figurative and allegorical and metaphorical, it's the kind of a story that you could say is, you know, it's repeated every time any empire rises and falls. And the, but the empire of Christ continues, as we said, it started real small 2000 years ago, and it's only growing and expanding and nothing will ever stop it. Whereas other empires, Rome and pick one, any empire that's ever existed, they, they grow, they get huge, they're massive, and then they collapse. And that just keeps happening over and over and over again. And so Revelation, I think, is intended to be a picture for us of how we, as members and citizens of the kingdom of Christ, um, can subversively overthrow the empires of this world hmm. and, and how it's inevitable. Christ's kingdom will inevitably take over. So in, if we can approach Revelation from that sort of a general, again, from that perspective, then I think we can understand it better. Um, it's not, I don't, again, I don't think Revelation is telling us about our future in any specific way. Mm -hmm. um, not that bad things won't happen, but it's not the end of the world. It's not like, right. oh, game over, shut out the lights, it's all going to end. Um, because they use apocalyptic language, apocalyptic hyperbole. Jesus uses it in Elevate Discourse. But so did Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel uh, when they were talking about the destruction of Babylon or Egypt or Edom or even Jerusalem. 
they use the exact same language. You know, mm. you know, the sun not giving its light, the moon turning to blood, fire in the sky, and the scroll being the the, the, the sky being rolled back like a scroll, and the, you know, stars falling from the sky, and wailing, uh, you know, weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. The exact same language. Yeah. But they they weren't talking about the end of the world. They were talking about the end of Babylon, or the end of Edom, or the end of Jerusalem, or the end of Egypt. And so, so again, we need to back up and recognize that's that's kind of, the language is being used is not really describing mm-hmm. end of end of world events. So, is it fair to say that we're most people have been caught in the in misunderstanding end of the world stuff are Jesus' own words in Matthew twenty four. Uh, yeah. Is that addressed in your book? Absolutely. Oh my okay. gosh. Yes. Because when that one, when that hit me, my jaw hit the floor, and I could never unsee what I saw. Yes. So, <laughs> tell us well, about that main, real quick. Yeah, I'll tell you the main thing about that because again, that's probably the longest chapter in the book is the okay. discourse because I go I go verse by verse through side by side Matthew, Mark, and Luke because all three of them contain it and are almost verbatim. But the parts where they differ, they're slightly where they slightly differ in the story that actually unlocks some of the meaning because Luke says some things more plainly than Matthew and Mark do. And, but then they, then they go come back and track together again. Um, but yeah, the, the main thing to get about the Alibet discourse is that it's not about the end of the world. Um, and it, the clue is at the beginning of the conversation. How does the whole thing start? Well, Jesus and his, and the disciples are leaving the temple and the disciples stop and go, Oh Jesus, look at this temple. Isn't it amazing? It's just incredible. It's so beautiful. And it's just the greatest thing ever. And Jesus says, you know, a day's coming soon when not one of these stones will be left upon the other. And they're like, whoa, 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 what? Jesus, explain to us, tell us when will these things be? What things? The temple being destroyed. And so everything he says after that is about specifically something that he says will happen in their lifetime. He says, many of you standing here will be alive to see everything. He says, everything I'm saying will come to pass uh, before you die. So that means everything. That means there's nothing about that conversation that's, oh, well, that part's in the future or the end of time or the end of the world. No, it's all about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which was fulfilled about 40 years after he said it in very phenomenal ways. And that's one thing I do in the book as well. What's missing in our New Testament is the passages about how it happened, right? Mm -hmm. That's partly why it's easy to take those like, so Jesus saying this will happen in the future, and it sounds so amazing, and you know, cataclysmic and apocalyptic. We think, well, you know, I guess that never happened because you know, no one ever saw that happen. So you're left to believe that it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. So what I do in my book is I look at things like Josephus, um, Tacitus, some Roman historians in the first century around the time of AD 70 who describe the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, and if you, it's it's mind-boggling how similar it is to what Jesus says is going to happen in the end. And these guys weren't Christians. They were either pagan or they were uh, Jewish, uh, pro-Roman, you know, historians. They were trying to make the dots connect for Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. Probably didn't even know there was an Olivet Discourse. <laughs> so, you know, but seeing how those things are, were fulfilled, I think is very helpful. Do you, do you address the Mark of the Beast? Oh, yes. There's Good. a whole thing about the Mark of the Beast, yes. Good. Yes. Did it have something to do with that temple uh, place we had to do a sacrifice and put uh, ash on you on you so you can buy? Yeah, it does. I do. I do reference that. Yes. Good. And the number of the name of the yep. beast and who that is okay. and who that was and even even why. Here's the thing. Even why 
John seems to use like very cryptic language. Hmm. Like when he says things like, you know, the name, the number of his name is 660 and six, let the reader understand. Or even at the end of the book, when he says, you know, um, and if anyone adds to or takes away anything in this book, may God add to him the plagues written. Well, you know, again, we got to keep in mind, he was a political prisoner uh, under Roman, uh, you know, he was in a Roman, basically under Roman guard. He wrote that in Revelation though, right? He wrote that in Revelation. So he's talking about that book. That book. Because, again, it's a letter. <laughs> Listen, if I was arrested by the U.S. government. People uh, think it means me, the whole Bible. <laughs> right. They think it means the whole Bible. Right. Um, but, so yeah, like if I was arrested by the U.S. government for, for uh, saying things that they thought were undermining, you know, the, the government. And now I'm in, I'm in jail and, I, and I'm on 24-7 guard and I'm writing letters to you and other people. Don't you think they're going to read those letters and censor them? Because they already see me as somebody who's like, you know, instigating revolution and, and uh, you know, whatever. So mm -hmm. they're going to be. So John knows that. That's why John says, hey, by the way, he's talking to the Roman censor reading his letter. If you add to or take away anything in this letter, God is going to do these things to you. He's trying to like scare them into like not messing with his letter before it yep. goes out. Use so, the God yeah, card. <laughs> yeah, just understanding why he uses certain language, why he talks the way he talks. Um, and then again, it, it's a, there's no more confusing book in the Bible than Revelation. But I think if we can at least see it in general, as I said, mm -hmm. as a book about how Christ's kingdom subverts the kingdoms of the world uh, and how he did. How Is it supposed to be a revelation of Jesus, the whole book? Yes, exactly, exactly. It's a revelation of, of Jesus, of Christ. Not a not, revelation not, of fear. Or the end of the world. <laughs> not even, yeah. And it does. Here's the thing about Revelation 2. It doesn't end on a, on a sca scary, sad, woeful note. It ends on a beautiful note of this new Jerusalem, you know, and the, door, the gates are never shut. And um, even though the nations who, who warred against Christ are outside the gates, you know, Jesus says, come, anyone who's thirsty, come and drink freely from the waters of life. It's a very, it's a welcoming, hopeful, you know, um, all things made new kind of a picture at the end. So again, all of it's pointing to something really, really good, not mm -hmm. something bad. So let me, let me ask you one trick question, because I don't know if it's in the book or not. Uh, the idea then of a second coming of Jesus. How do we perceive that? What, what, have, what would you say to somebody asking, well, then maybe Jesus hasn't come. Maybe he is already here. If that's true, is there something else coming? Like, mm -hmm. what, do you, what do you say to that? Well, there, see, now you're getting to the, that's, that's sort of the hook of the book there. That's, you know, because the subtitle is Ending the End Times. That's like the first half of the book. To become the second coming. Mm -hmm. And so what I talk about in, in the book is, yeah, another perspective to how we think about the second coming. The idea that, um, like, for, for example, in John, when G, in John 14, when Jesus tells the disciples, it's better for you if I go away. Mm. Well, we should think about that for a second, because, again, most of us as Christians, we don't believe that. We think, oh, it's going to be so much better when Jesus comes back. <laughs> but he said, no, it's better if I go away. Well, what does he mean by that? In what ways is it better? And I think if we really understand what he meant by that, we would agree with him. You know what? You're right. It is better. <laughs> um, and so I, I go into much more detail on that. And I, 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 what I want us to get a picture of, I think one of the key verses that for me uh, was, is a verse in Romans. It's Romans chapter 8. And um, where Paul talks about something that all of creation is groaning and longing to happen. And it's not the second coming of Jesus. Now, we do. Again, the church often is like, oh, Jesus, we're just waiting for you to come back. Again, we're waiting for you to come back and fix everything. 
But that's not what Paul says. Paul says in Romans 8, all of creation is yearning and groaning and longing for the sons and daughters of God mm. to be revealed. That's us. Mm. In other words, all creation is waiting for us to wake up and get it. We are the incarnation of Christ in the world. Christ is already in the world, in the flesh, in you and in me. We're his hands. We're his feet. We're the body of Christ. That's what they call the church. We're his mm. body in the world, directed by the spirit, directed by the head, which is Christ. But we're his body in the world. Here's a crazy thing to think about. Um, there is more of Christ in the world today than there was 2,000 years ago. Mm. There was only one Jesus 2,000 years ago. But how much of Christ is in the world today? Millions all over the planet, all at yet, the same time. And yet people think the world's getting worse because they use yeah. the newspaper as their headlines. I think it's getting better. It is. But it's really hard for people to wrap their heads around that. That's right. That, and you're exactly right. And if you really wanted to dig into, into depth on that, actually, it's it is the truth. Trust me, you wouldn't want to live in the Middle Ages. You wouldn't want to live, you know, during some of the most violent you know, yeah. plagues and, and torture and just, you know, people enslaved. And it was horrible, dirty, filthy, just awful. You know, it, trust me, we live right now in the best time in history we could possibly live. So yeah. um, things are getting better. Now, it doesn't mean there's not problems around the world, of course. Um, but here's, here's how I like to express it. I don't express it exactly this way in the book, but this is the way I've been trying to uh, think about it and talk about it. That in times left behind, deep in the night story that we all grew up with, right? It's this sort of this massive action film, you know, <laughs> trilogy, explosions, fire, dragons, monsters. Oh, dude, it's such a cool, amazing story. It's why they try to make, you know, movies about it for so long. And, and so in my book, I'm kind of taking that away from you. I'm saying, no, that isn't real. That's not, which, that's not the way it's going to happen. And so when I take that away from people, I've literally had people say to me, well, you just took that away, but like, now what? What am I looking forward to? What's, if I don't have that, what do, you, what do I have? And um, this is the way I think is the best way to think of it. Rather than that movie, rather than that story of you sitting in the theater, eating popcorn, watching this amazing story that's going to happen any day now, to think of it like this, I think really this is exactly what the scriptures actually tell us. It's actually as if, it's as if Jesus is coming to you and handing you a lightsaber and saying, okay, Mike, here's a lightsaber. Do you want to overthrow the empire? Do you want to rescue the princess? Do you want to bring balance to the force? Because we need you. And I want you to be, your life is now invested in this story and you're going to jump into the adventure because you have a role to play. Mm -hmm. You have something we need you to accomplish. It's not sitting back and watching something that's going to happen. No. We are all invited into this incredible story, and we actually will get to bring Christ to the world. We actually will get to embody Christ to people around us, and we will. I kind of call it the slow motion second coming of Christ. <laughs> we are the second coming of Christ yeah. as we live out Christ. Christ abides in me, and I abide in him. Um, that's what we're called to step into, and that's the imagination I want us to get, to get that idea and, and start, let's run with this. That's think, much more hopeful, right? That's much it more is, but I think there's one thing fighting that in, in believers who have believed the traditional thinking it's humility, admitting maybe it was wrong. Um, <laughs> that honestly, because careers have been built on this, yes. uh, your whole evangelism ministry has been built on this. Yes, oh my goodness, 
if God hadn't started tearing some stuff apart in me years ago, I would not have come to the place to even understand what David Chilton was saying. By the way, the book he, the one I first read was The Great Tribulation that he wrote, and it was fantastic. But that was the beginning. And if I had not heard something in my spirit tell me there's something right about this, mm-hmm. whether he's right or not, was not the point. There's right. more to it than what we've been told. Hell was another topic. What? You know, yeah. and, and on and on. So this end times one is one of the biggest ones. I think the Western church is struggling with in my world versus yes, we got a small list because you and I have been talking about deconstruction and we have a great list of stuff, but yeah. for end times, I think this is a really, really big one that's causing a lot of fear. So especially right now, you know, uh, as you said, I think I couldn't have I couldn't have timed it any better for this book to come out right now <laughs> yeah. because all of a sudden I'm seeing you know on Facebook and Twitter and on social media like like you said is 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 COVID you know something uh, one of the plagues of Revelation and is the um, if there's a vaccine will that be the mark of the beast and um, you know the more we buy into that the more it just creates fear and fear paralyzes us I, I don't yep. think the body of Christ should be paralyzed you know again we've not been given a spirit of fear we've been a a spirit of love and a power and of a sound mind. So let's yeah. let's do our best to move in that direction. That was the other part of my sermon. I went through all that because <laughs> it's really important. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. Our time is up. You gave me more time than I asked for. Yeah. Um, but thanks for this. I'm, I'm going to share this in its entirety uh, probably next week, Wednesday, uh, in my Still Growing Grace program that I do weekly. But I'm going to show part of this tomorrow morning. And that part of Daniel where we talk about the two dreams, I think that was yeah. really helpful. I'm really anticipating and wanting to read this book when it comes. So I'm going to give you a shout out tomorrow as well on your book. Um, But I think it's great. Thanks for writing it. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it, man. Love you, man. Thanks for the time. And uh, I'll talk to you again soon. Thanks. All right. Take care. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Join me next time on Still Growing in Grace for more good news. Enjoy previous episodes by downloading our podcast at growingingrace.ca. You can also visit hopefellowshipycc.com to find our service times and location. If this show has been an encouragement to you, please consider making a donation today at growingingrace.ca and help us keep spreading this good news. Thank you again for tuning in to Still Growing in Grace.